turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935 if you want to join me on the program. And again, uh, friendly producer Jim Nichols standing by to take your call, 303 303- Eight seven three nineteen thirty five. We've been talking um, a lot, if you will, about what's going on in the news, and it's so. Again, there's this seesaw that happens to be going back and forth about Russia. Is Russia withdrawing troops? Let's hope so, or building up troops. Well, again, the evidence seems to indicate that this crisis has not been averted. I remember hearing someone um, say that, is it too late to come up with a diplomatic solution? And someone who understands these things says, I, I think so, but she hopes that there's still the chance of a diplomatic solution, and so do I. So hopefully, prayerfully, there will be um, a diplomatic solution. There's also another interesting technology. You know, again, as we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about um, the growing... Um, the, the, the word I, I would look for is reasons to believe that we're living in the last days. I've actually talked about the signs of nature and the signs of society and the spiritual signs and the signs in world politics. And we've talked a lot about Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. And again, if you want to join me, it's 303 Eight seven three nineteen thirty five. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And the Bible prophesies some very specific configuration of world politics at the end. Israel is pictured as being reestablished in its homeland in Ezekiel chapter thirty seven, verses twenty one and twenty two. And in that picture it would appear that they're surrounded by hostile neighbors. And that seems to be exactly what's happening. And Daniel prophesied that the Roman Empire would be revived in Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. Something many men like Charlemagne, Napoleon, and Hitler tried to do by force, but the prophecy had to await God's timing for its fulfillment. And of course, there was World War I and World War II and the formation of the European Common Market. And then we have this European Union. 
But also we have other global actors who are um, a part of the mix as we see things happening. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Monica, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Um, my question was, you know, um, I, I'm i a Christian and I believe in the Bible, God, everything. But you hear people on YouTube or on channels or people even that write books who say um, that they died, they had a, something happened to them, they died. And they, that Jesus, they seen Jesus, they went to heaven and they came back to talk about it or to give a message. Or, uh-huh. And I was just, well, is it, is, is that biblical? Is it true? Does that, well, is it, the, I, I guess the way that I would answer your question is, again, even that idea about near-death experiences. So, Monica, we're, we're left with two kinds of odd realities, right? Mm-hmm. Did a person really die? Or, or was it a quote unquote near death? You know, the yeah. so p- people have alleged that they were on the brink of death. Some have alleged that they literally died and that they came back to life. Some people in Second in Corinthians chapter twelve, Paul talks about something very similar to this. But what's interesting to me is when he talks about it, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Mm -hmm. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He goes on and he says that he didn't have permission to talk about what he saw. Which okay. is interesting to me because everybody who claims to have these experiences seem to seem to contradict not only each other but what the Bible says. So the the way that I would answer your question is that I don't think it's possible for God to give someone a death or near death experience. And then, and then I, I guess, is it possible? I, there's, a, it, it's it's almost Im, impossible to dispute a person's experience. Let me tell you what I mean by that, Monica. Okay. If you told me um, that you died and came back to life, mm-hmm. it would be impossible for me to say no, you didn't. It, all I can do is say, well, tell me what happened to you. Now, whether or not it happened, I have absolutely no way of knowing. Okay. But the way that I, I, would, I would caution people is to be careful how we validate our experience. Okay. Um, so, the, the, so here's the way I would answer your question. Our experiences don't inform us about what the Bible says. The Bible is supposed to inform our experience. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, that really does make sense. So because the Bible is silent about near-death experiences, I'm reluctant to go, well, that really happened or it really didn't happen. Okay. But I am willing to say there seems to be good evidence that your soul is different from your body and that when people die, their soul leaves their body, 
is it possible that a soul could leave a body and come back? Well, we have the story of Lazarus who Mm -hmm. dies and literally comes back to life in a resurrection, but he's been dead for four days. Yeah. And so the, the way that I would with caution is I would consider any description of a near death experience to be evaluated in light of what God's word says about any given thing. So imagine somebody says, I went to heaven and I saw rainbow ponies. Well, yeah. <laughs> what, do, what do I say to that? Yeah. Or I went to heaven and I, and it was like, you know, Smurf, it was like a Smurf village. I, yeah. I, what do you say to that? So I, I, it, I, I, the way that I would, it's not impossible for God to give someone a near death or anyone for that matter, a vision of heaven. Okay. But what is, but it's not normative. And when it does happen, trust, but verify. What does the Bible say? Yeah. Okay. So if somebody says everybody is in heaven and it doesn't really matter if you believe in Jesus or not, that's a lie. Yeah, that's a lie. Yeah, that's no, that's not true. Okay. Yeah, that's not true. So you, so no. the way that we have to think about it is we have to go, mm, no. Okay. I, I'm reluctant to believe that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gina Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303 303- 873-1935. Happy, happy to take your call. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Charlene, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for hey, taking my call. Well, I was wondering, um, I ran across a couple volumes, volume one and two, of what is called the books, and I was wondering if you could tell me Charlene, we we seem you seem to be cutting in and out. D- Jim, have you? Uh... I'm sorry, Charlene. I didn't actually hear what you. I mean, I I heard a few words, but you seem to be cutting in and out. Did you put her on hold? Okay, so put her back on. Let's see if we can hear her now. Oh, we lost her. Well, hopefully she'll call back. Um... Jim, I don't know if you noticed, but she seemed to be cutting in and out. Okay, yeah, hopefully, prayerfully, by all means, uh, call me back. Because I know that you were calling about, miss, you know, maybe a, a book called The Lost Books of the Bible or The Missing Books of the Bible, and I would love, love, love to talk about your question. Um, I don't know what your question is other than, you know, it might have to do with the validity or the value of of these things. There, there's several books that have come out um, about what's called the pseudepigrapha or um, the apocrypha. Now, the pseudepigrapha is different from the apocrypha. 
because one deals with with books, you know, in other words, there, there's a lot of questions associated with what you're talking about. Like, you know, what is the canon of Scripture? Who decided which books are supposed to be placed in the Bible? What's the criteria um, that were used in determining which books belonged in the Bible? How do we know we've got the correct books in the Bible? Did Jews and Christians use the same Old Testament? Um, should other early writings be placed in the Bible? And... Um, why was the authority of certain Old Testament books questioned? And what is the Apocrypha? And what about other books that claim biblical authority? And the ones that that come to my mind are books like the Proto-Evangelion, the Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus, um, the alleged epistles of Jesus and, and Agabarus, the King of Edessa, the Gospel of Nicodemus, um, and the Gospel of Thomas, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Arco volume, the lost books of the Bible. So, you know, I'm I'm happy to take those calls. Maybe while Charlene, hopefully she, she can call back. But one of the most important uh, questions, of course, is that one about how do we know that we have the correct books. So the Bible that we have like right now has 66 books. And the fact that these books belong in the scriptures confirmed by the testimony of Jesus. So in regard to the old Testament, we have the testimony of Jesus to the existing books. He confirmed the accepted threefold division of what we call the canonical books. And canonical just means the rule or the measure or the standard. So canonical or canon are those books which are received. So in Luke 24, 44, it says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So as far as the New Testament is concerned, we have the promise of Jesus in John 14, 26, where he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so we don't have the, his guarantee after the fact, but we have the promise that the New Testament would be given. And so we have Jesus pre-authenticating the writings. Another reason we can be assured the correct books are in the Bible is the nature of God. It's been estimated that there are a quintillion stars in the universe, and the Bible says God calls them all by name. So if God is able to do this, he's certainly able to preserve and maintain his testimony as a credible witness. Now, again, for inclusion in the New Testament, there were certain criteria. Like, it had to have been written by an apostle or the close companion of an apostle. It had to be internally consistent. It had to be widely used. And so... 
if that criteria or if all of that those that that criteria was not met then it would have been um dismissed so 303-873-1935 that's the number if you want to join me on the program and just as an aside there's really no lost books so when pe- when people say what about the lost books there are no lost books the the books that are excluded from the bible were never intended to be there now so that becomes the great big million dollar question is it possible that there were books missing that were supposed to be included that have in fact been excluded so one of the challenges that we have is that question how do we make a case that every book in the bible that's supposed to be in the bible is in fact in the bible is it possible that god intended something to be in the bible and it is in fact not in the bible yeah that's a great question 3038731935 that's the number if you want to join me on the air do you want you actually want me to answer that question <laughs> 3038731935 there are there are legends rumors of lost books of the bible there have been numerous books that have been written some even with the title lost books of the bible but the books aren't lost rather they were rejected remember what i talked about earlier that in order for something to be accepted it had to have been written by an apostle or the close companion of, a, of a, an apostle. It had to be internally consistent with the nature of God, the character of God, the word of God, the revelation of God. And then it had to be widely, widely used in the early church. So there are literally hundreds of religious books that were written in the same time period as the books of the Bible. Did you know that? Some of these books contain true accounts of things that really happened, like the intertestamental books of First Maccabees do provide strong historical support for certain things. Others even have some good spiritual teaching, like the Wisdom of Solomon. However, these books aren't inspired by God. And if we read any of the books, like the apocryphal ones mentioned, we have to treat them as fallible, religious historical books, interesting, fascinating, maybe even helpful, but they don't rise to the level of being what we would call inspired or inerrant. So 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Josh, welcome to the program. Hello, how's it going? It's going good. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about, you were talking about the uh, apocryphal books a second Uh ago. 
and your reasoning as to why they were not accepted and the other ones were, it seems like your reasoning for why the other books were accepted was because they were breathed by God. They were what? And that breathed by God. I don't think you said that, but basically you said... um, Well, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, but there were actual criteria that was used to determine the inclusion or the exclusion of New Testament documents. So we're talking a little bit differently when we're talking about the Old Testament Scripture in the sense that the the revelation of the Old Testament was pretty firmly established by the time 90 A.D. rolls around in the Council of Jamnia. Okay. Um, so I guess what I had a little bit of trouble with that there was it's like we're using the way that the Bible describes God and that he wouldn't make a mistake, and yet that's that's the book that was accepted, whereas there might have been another book that just wasn't accepted that would be considered a mistake based on the logic um, that the other book was just the right one, if that makes sense. Well, let's try and make some sense from it. So in the New Testament— if something was written by a recognized prophet or apostle, the, the person who was a, a, an apostle or the close companion of an apostle, then mm-hmm. it, the, the writing had to be associated with that. And then truthfulness, truthfulness of the writing. So there was, there's an internal or an external kind of consistency. So if, if, if a, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 23 to 22, it says that if a prophet claims to be speaking from me and what he said is not true, then he hasn't spoken from me. It's not from the Lord, if that's the case. Well, who would decide whether or not it's true? Well, the text itself just sort of de- decides if it's true. Now, Now, again, you're exactly right. Who decides if it's true or false? There seems to be a corpus of information, a body of literature, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then there is a body of individuals, churches, um, that are spread throughout, you know, the Mediterranean. So that becomes one of the criteria. Is it widely used in the churches and accepted, and then is it faithful to the previously accepted canonical writings? So the whole Old Testament, although this wasn't convincing to Jewish scholars, mm-hmm. um, the, the Christian church had no difficulty accepting the 39 books of the Jewish people or of the Jewish Old Testament because of what Jesus said, on the road to Emmaus. He said, when you search the scriptures, they are those which testify about me. Now the New Testament becomes a, a little bit more difficult. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 16, Paul, where, where um, Peter alludes to the fact that, that what Paul is saying is really hard to understand. But then he refers to it as scripture. So to, to your point, who gets to decide? Well, is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is it Peter? Is it Paul? Who exactly 
is uh, the authoritative basis for the inclusion or the exclusion of any given document. And mm-hmm. so, so it actually isn't an individual, but so there, the whole canon of Scripture isn't really firmly established until the middle of the second century. Okay. Um, so let me give so you an we, example, okay? Okay. Okay, go ahead. Diocletian was a very famous Roman emperor who persecutes the church in in the first century. That means in the 200s. And so he is trying to retain the culture of Rome and the religion of Rome, if you will. And as he's trying to retain the culture and the religion of Rome, he's trying to stamp out Christianity. So he says to the Roman generals, destroy their sacred writings. Now, again, I'm using this historical example to to help you just put it in perspective. The the Roman generals say to, um, to Diocletian, Sure, we'll destroy their scriptures. What are they? <laughs> yeah. You know, how are they supposed to know what the sacred scriptures are? And you know what Diocletian's answer was? He said, whatever they're willing to die for, burn it. Wow. Now, again, I have a library of some more than 3,000 books. Now, I don't think all of the th- books in my library are sacred. And and you may or may not, or you may, there might be something so important to you that it's so important to you that you really are willing to die to preserve it. But isn't that interesting? So, again, now we go back to what I said earlier. It had to have the ring of apostolic authority. It had to be internally consistent. It had to be widely used. If I could. Sure. Just being willing to die for something does not make it true. You're right. Because, you know, I mean, there are plenty of religions that are willing to die for their own religion. But is does and, it add credibility to at least to what they thought was true? Well, does credibility matter if somebody thinks something is true, if it's not true? Well, I think credibility matters. Well, meaning... Um, so, say there's a you know another religion, and they, um, you know, say you know I believe in what I believe so hard that I'm going to die for it, whether that be you know like I mean I was in the military, like suicide bomber or anything like that, and it's 100% dying for their religion okay. in their head. Yeah, but, but let's that does, con- that let's make yeah, them. Yeah, let's contrast what their, you, yeah let's okay, contrast what you just said with with another religion, okay? Okay. Um, and thank you for your service, by the way. My uh, son is a major in the Army. Um, oh, nice. So, to your point, imagine a person is willing to die for their religion. Mm-hmm. But what do you think of a religion that's willing to kill you to preserve their religion? So, imagine a religion called philosophical 
naturalism or materialistic socialism or communism where in Russia they'll kill 30 million people or in China they'll kill 50 million people or in North Korea they'll kill millions and millions of people. Khmer Rouge, they kill millions and millions of people. In other words, they're not dying. Maybe some of them are dying for their belief, but but they seem to be more motivated not so much to die themselves for their faith like Islam – but yeah. they seem more motivated to kill you for their faith. Well, I mean, <laughs> Christianity has been Christianity has been on that side of the sword as well, um, just not recently. Well, and and again, I I I I would take exception, and let me tell you what I mean by that. I think it's okay. true what you said that Christianity has been on the other side of the sword because at that point, both the political and the religious composition of civilization were deeply entwined. But I'm going to suggest to you that historical biblical Christianity doesn't support the idea of killing people in order to get them to comply. Okay. Um, So so again, if we contrast and compare somebody like Mohammed, who in fact does kill people, and we compare Mohammed with somebody like Jesus— is, is there strong historical evidence that Jesus and his immediate followers killed people in order to get them to comply? Probably not. Hey, but what an interesting conversation. Thanks for joining me. I gotta go. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. You know, it really is a fascinating subject to ask that question, you know, by whose authority or on what basis or who gets to decide. And um, it's it's interesting to me because, again, we were talking about lost books, and then we were talking about the criteria um, that was used to determine the canon of the Scripture of what could be included or or excluded. And again, it wasn't just an individual. It was a collective commitment on the part of the early church. So um, obviously there were lots and lots of things being written in the first century. Um. And as they were being written, it it became clear that there were certain things that had a ring of truth and certain things that didn't have a ring of truth. Now, using the criteria of a recognized prophet or apostle, what do you do with something like the book of Hebrews? The book of Hebrews took longer in that recognition because there was a dispute about its authorship. But by a number of other criteria, it's clear that Hebrews is inspired, that it belongs in that collection of New Testament documents or your New Testament Bible. But authorship caused it to be accepted late. So many of the books, so many of the books in the Bible are accepted by the fact that they were written by someone um, that became, it was recognizable. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, Peter, Paul. So usually when the authorship is pretty clear-cut, that's not a problem. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So 
these are the books written by those associated with a recognized prophet or apostle who learned from an apostle or prophet. So imagine you have, like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is a close companion of Paul. He is under his supervision, teaching, instruction. And so now Luke pens the book of Luke and Acts. And by the way, the compilation of those two books, even though they're only two books, comprise 33% of the entire New Testament. So in terms of total pages and total volume, the New Testament wasn't written by an apostle, but by someone who was a close companion of the apostle. Luke travels with Paul, learns from Paul. That explains how in Luke chapter 1, he, he worked hard to represent the accuracy from credible sources which he gathered about what was true during the life of Jesus, during his ministry, during his teaching, during his death and his resurrection. So close proximity to the apostle was an important aspect. And then I talked about truthfulness. It had to be internally and externally consistent. It had to be true in what it said. If anything was found not to be true, it could be dismissed as not being from God. And so that means that it had to be not only true in what it said, but then it had to be true based on the previous revelation that had gone by. That's where Hebrews shines in the church's acceptance. Hebrews, the little book of Hebrews, not only agrees with, but explains and brings clarity to what was being taught concerning the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and how now we process that covenant in light of what who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so the whole Old Testament, although, again, it wasn't convincing to Jewish scholars, to Judaism in the first century, the, the, the Christian church had no difficulty accepting the writings of Moses, the Nevaim, the Ketubim, the writings of the prophets. Now, the New Testament becomes a little bit more difficult like again, Second Peter chapter three verse sixteen. There's obviously an awareness in the first century, an apostolic awareness that Scripture is being written. Paul himself understands what he wrote is the word of God. Peter in Second Peter three sixteen understands what Paul writes as Scripture. Paul himself refers to his own writing with language like that. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, his words, which you heard from us, connect the dots, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, 
which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, when Paul uses that kind of language to describe his proclamation of the gospel, what it actually does in the person who listens and hears it and believes it and how they are changed, that's powerful. So ultimately, what happened was that these letters circulated and they began became used by more and more groups of people. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that it had to be widely used among the church. The church used these writings. They were deeply edified by them. They were believed over time. And I'm going to suggest to you that that, that it was believed that they were from God. So that the final acceptance uh, or the recognition of these books of the Bible take place in what was called the Senate of Carthage in AD 397. That's not to say that there wasn't a wide recognition of most of the Bible, because what, what I'm talking here is mostly about the New Testament. The Old Testament books were never in question because of the dominical approval in Luke 24, when Jesus says the law, the prophets and the writings and some of the new Testament books take longer for them to be accepted. But most of them were in fact embraced and accepted in the first century. There were some that took longer like second Peter, like second John, like third John, like the book of Jude, like the book of Hebrews But at the Council of Carthage in 397, they were accepted by the church and have been ever since. 303-873-1935. Thanks so much for joining me. And I hope and I pray that this has been sort of interesting as as we've sort of gotten into the weeds um, about the Bible And like I said, the lost books of the Bible, there really are none that are lost. And we talked a little bit about the Apocrypha. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, was a forgery written in the third or the fourth century. So again, if you say this is the Gospel of Thomas, but Thomas has already been dead for hundreds of years. So, but it's making a claim to have been written by an apostle, but it wasn't written by the apostle Thomas. The early Christians almost universally rejected the Gospel of Thomas as heretical. Do you want to know why? Because it contained false and heretical things about the identity of Jesus, about what he supposedly said, and his mission. For example, it would say nonsensical things like, Blessed is the lion that a person will eat and the lion will become human. What a... That's nonsense. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back tomorrow. Take your calls, answering your questions. Thanks, Jim.